Welcome to In the Midst, a podcast where we make room to sit in the midst of grief with others. I'm your host, Alyssa, and I am joined today by my friend, Courtney Childers. Fair warning, this episode includes the topic of suicide, so if that is a triggering topic for you, this is your chance to pause, turn on something else, and come back when you're ready. Thanks for listening. All right, it's good to be back. I am joined today by my good friend, Courtney. Hello. It's so good to have you here. I'm excited to get to hear a little bit more of your story. Um, But first, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Courtney Childers. I just recently graduated with my master's from Indiana Wesleyan in biblical and theological studies. Um, I'm married to my great husband, Clayton, and I've known Alyssa for a long time. Yeah, Courtney and I actually met on move-in day our freshman year. We lived across from each other, and I was trying to open a package or something, and I walked across the hall, and I was just shouted into this room, does anybody have scissors? And Courtney popped up from the back, and she was like, I do. I saw this as my opportunity to make a friend, and, and I said, did. I will not pass on this. I don't know where these scissors are, but I will find them. And she like dug them out of this box, and they were still in the package, and she <laughs> opened them and handed them to me, and I low-key have this core memory of us having a conversation about right versus left-handed. I think you what? asked me, like, oh, they're left-handed scissors. Is that okay? And I said, yeah, I'm left-handed. And I for sure have never owned left-handed scissors, so I'm so glad that they worked for you because I still own them today. It, it was it was good. I was like, oh, that's actually perfect. Um, but after that encounter, Courtney and I got to know each other and became a part of a little friend group of girls who lived on our hall. Mm-hmm. And we ended up living together the next year on Evans to East again, where Courtney was actually the RA, which was super cool. Oh, yeah. I loved Res Life. So good. And you you get at it. Um, And you continued in Evans later mm-hmm. on and became the ARD. And mm-hmm. yeah, she... Currently the grad assistant over University Court. Yep. So it ended up being like a prolonged career choice, at least mm-hmm. for college. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So Courtney and I have known each other for what feels like... A very long time and a very short time. Five years. Absolutely. Wild. College is so crazy. My my very first college friend. I had the honor of uh, standing up in Courtney's wedding last summer when she and Clayton got married. And it's been so fun to go through master's with her. Mm-hmm. It's been a good time. Um, So the age-old question, how we have started all of our episodes. Um, could you share with us what your earliest memory of grief or loss is? Yeah, my first memory had to have been when I was about five. And so my parents took us to this park. It was a brand new park. So imagine being like five years old, me and my older sister, who's like three years older than me, we were at this park, but it's like new territory. So we're like running around, like crawling on everything. Of course, the child that I was probably somehow getting in trouble. The siblings we were probably fought about something. But we are just having a great day at this park. And we end up being on the swings at one point. And I remember my dad was pushing me. And my sister was so upset because no one was pushing her. (laughs) Keep in mind, she was three years older than me as well. So I probably, like, couldn't swing myself. But that's besides the point, apparently. Um, But she... So, yeah. So my dad is pushing me and my mom is in front of us. 
And in my child mind, we're just having a great day and we're at the park as a family. And then to us, out of the blue, my mom takes off her wedding rings and throws them at my dad. And she walks off to her car. We'd somehow driven there separately. Separately. Probably if someone came from work or something. Mm -hmm. But she walks to her car and leaves. And so from our perspective, more than likely they were arguing the whole time we were there. But from our perspective, we were so excited about this brand new park that we just were having a heyday. And yeah, she gets in her car and leaves. And then we're left at this park and have to figure out what to do from there. And then that ultimately led to your parents' divorce, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, something that I don't think we talk about frequently enough is that a lot of feelings that are common when losing someone come up in divorces. Absolutely. And it is its own sort of grieving process. Oh, it is the grieving process. You walk through all of it, but I feel like there's an added layer of, not necessarily like hardship, but like it's an added layer of difficulty because you don't know how to mourn it and people around you don't know how to help you mourn it because what you're mourning is still there. Like your entire household shifts, your entire relationship shift, your family functions completely change. You end up having to like go back and forth to houses most of the time. Right. And like everything changes, but no one's gone. Right. So no one thinks of it as needing to be grieved. We could probably do like a whole episode on grief and divorce and grief and abandonment. Like there are many different types of grief. And just as we've walked through a couple different stories on this podcast, there there's really unique losses to death. There's also mm-hmm. really unique, you know, stories like yours. Yeah. And speaking of unique losses, we're here to listen to you share a bit about the experience you had in high school mm-hmm. um, and just the uniqueness that that death entailed. Um, so would you mind sharing your story with us? Yeah, I ended up losing one of my closest friends, his name was Levi, to suicide when I was a junior in high school. And just backing up in the story, I... I was in fifth grade, so my parents had gotten divorced. I was in fifth grade. My mom gets remarried and ends up having to move us hours away from where we were living before. And in that, we lost our support system. We lost the family that we lived around. We went to this new town and knew nobody. And the guy that she married was not, not great. He was abusive in literally every way. And... So we're living in this not great environment in this brand new place. And I don't know if our next door neighbors knew what our home life was like or not, but they welcomed me in with complete open arms. So they had kids that were the same age as me and my sister. And I genuinely think that year that I spent more time at their house than I did my own. And so their son that was the same age as me, Levi, he was the first person that I opened up to about what I had felt when my parents got divorced a few years before that, what I felt in this new 
horrible home and just all of the things that are entailed within that. And so he and I, he's the first person I opened up to about any of those things. And I actually have it tattooed on my arm, Jeremiah 2911, which stereotypically gets taken completely out of context a lot of times. Right, right. And he probably also took it out of context, but <laughs> fifth graders. And so he actually like told that verse to me and he'd probably learned it in Sunday school that last week or something. <laughs> and so he, hearing everything that I'm talking to him about, I remember it so vividly. He had a tire swing in his backyard and I cannot tell you how many times I ran into the tree from that tire swing, but that's besides the point. Um, but he just hearing everything that I poured out to him, like he either remembered that or something handed that to me and was like, okay, but God, like, but God doesn't want this for you. God wants you to have a future. He wants you to hope, prosper, all of the things. And like, this isn't it. So as I'm sitting in this suicidal ideation, which would not have been able to label that at fifth grade. I handed that to him and was like, I don't see a point in keep continuing in keeping on in any of the things. And he gave me hope. And so fast forward in the story, my mom ended up divorcing that guy praise. And so, but in that we moved back to the town near the town that I grew up in before that moving back to the town that I grew up before I not cut ties because we still continued our friendship, but how how much can you continue as you're that far away? So we stayed as in touch as we possibly could being so far from each other. Um, so fast forward to junior year. I had just gotten back from a college visit where I got to do all the fun things. And I was actually a wrestling manager and I go to wrestling practice um, November 12th and my stepdad looks at me from across the room and says, I remember plain as day, you know that black kid? Yeah, I heard he hung himself. Wow. His name was Levi Black. And so it was not a racist comment, which immediately I was like, oh my gosh, what is this guy saying? You thought he was being racist. And I was like, okay, I haven't checked the news today. What happened? Like, what is he talking about? And I'm like, what are you telling me right now? Like in the moment, I literally asked him like, what are you trying to tell me? Like, yeah. Right. Can we use names rather than derogatory statements? Yeah. And he was like, no, no, no. That, that one kid that wrestled that you knew um from Shenandoah was a school that he went to he's like yeah the one kid from Shenandoah like black what was his first name and I was like his younger brother's AJ and I was like AJ and Levi he's like yeah 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 them still not okay like what are you trying to tell me I'm glad that we got to who we're talking about like now what are you telling me he's like yeah yeah he killed himself keep in mind we are right before wrestling practices starts. Right. So all of the wrestling boys are around me. The room that we're in gets no service. So I immediately run out of the room and go to a spot that I have service and I'm Googling. I am like, no, absolutely not. This did not happen. 
you heard incorrectly. You are wrong. I don't know where you heard this, but he's wrong. And I found one article and said, no, it's wrong. This Mm -hmm. isn't correct. Found another article and another article and another article that all stated that like proved what he was saying was right. And I did not walk back into practice, didn't tell them I was leaving. I went to my locker to get, I couldn't even tell you what all I got out of my locker, at least my keys to go to my car, but grabbed my keys, went to my car and drove home because I was like, I cannot be around people if I'm going to process this. So if there were already news articles out, how long had it been from the time that you found out to the time that he had ultimately passed away? Yeah. I found out on November 12th after school, right before practice. Okay. So like three o'clock, I don't know. Right. But like after school, he had taken his life during the Veterans Day program on November 11th, the day before while everyone was at the the program. convocation yeah um he went to the locker room instead and so probably because of how high profile slash like how known it was that's how quick it was to be like written or like talked right. about yeah it was covered pretty quickly yeah so when you got home did you let your parents know like what did you go home to an empty house. My mom was still either at school, like wrapping up. She had just become a teacher a few years before that. And she was in a different school district. So she didn't get home until like dinner time, but also we were all at practice. So she didn't expect anyone to come home. Right. So she didn't try to come home early. So she was gone. My brother is a wrestler. So he was at the practice that I just left. And then my stepdad was one of the coaches. So he was at the practice that I just left. And then my sister was in college. So I went home to an empty home. Well, my dog. I went home to my dog. (laughs) Yeah. And when you got there, were you still on the search for more proof? Or did you collapse and cry? Or did you just try to find something to do? Like, what were, were you going through the motions at that point? By the time I got home, it's about like a 10 minute drive home. I think through the drive... I had gotten to a slight point of accepting the fact that this wasn't just some rumor that my stepdad heard somewhere. It was true. And it wasn't something that I could deny because it was true. But I don't think I was at the point of accepting it. I just knew it was a fact. And so when I got home, my dog, I swear that she is an angel sent from (laughs) the lord himself i'm not joking you this dog has not only like you know how everyone's like oh my dog's my best friend yes sasha is my best friend however she like so deeply can read people's emotions and like do exactly what they need So whether they need to like, okay, she won't play fetch, but like (laughs) whether they need like someone just to sit, she will. Like if like to lay on her, Mm -hmm. she will. But like in other moments to just lay on her, she won't. Like she can, I don't, 
I swear she sent from the Lord because <laughs> I've never met a dog more with more discernment on people. And so I literally went home and like sat on the porch with my dog, probably in the garage, actually. I don't, I remember burying my face in her yeah. and just like holding on. But like that is, that is where I was. That is where I went to. Yeah, I feel like shock and denial probably really fed the, okay, this thing that people are telling me, I can't prove that's not true, but I don't want to accept it. So there's like not, you're not really believing. It's Mm kind of like watching something take place in like this out of body experience and you are just super removed from it. Mm -hmm. So leading up to that day, were there any hints in Levi at all that he had suicidal ideation? No. The only thing that I can say for me personally is that I felt some sort of nudge of like, it's been a minute, reach out. And I was like, no, there's a wrestling meet coming up. I'll talk to him there. Because at every like Thanksgiving break, there's this huge invite that we go to. And I was like, I'm going to see him soon. I would rather spend time in person than like shoot him a message or whatever so I was like I'm gonna wait until then was it hard to and I don't know if at the time that you processed this right away or if maybe this came up later but you shared that Levi was the person who introduced you to Christ or at least introduced you to the person of Jesus Mm -hmm. and walked with you through that journey um what how do you process losing someone who introduced you to hope and wondering what in the world did that mean for them if 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 he took his own life? Yeah, exactly. So it was obliterated immediately where I that was the first thing that I felt and thought after like not even to acceptance yet, like that probably that same day if not like sometime in that time frame but before acceptance even my emotional response was you gave me hope when I had none and was ready to take my life yeah but you couldn't find hope or you didn't have hope and took your life so what does that mean for the hope that I have in the hope that I have grasped onto so tightly and immediately like when I was in fifth grade and he handed that to me, I gripped so tightly and was like, yes. And between fifth grade and junior year, that hope helped me through a lot of hard moments and a lot of moments that I probably wouldn't have had hope otherwise. So in that moment, my, it felt like my grip on it was immediately released and it fell to the floor and shattered Mm -hmm. and was there like no more. So at any point in life, were you able to pick that hope back up again? Yes and no. So that hope that he handed me, I was able to like obtain and grasp again, but it wasn't necessarily the same hope that had shattered before where at that point, to use an analogy, it was kind of a 
not necessarily crutch, but something that someone else had handed me to be able to like keep going where at this point, it was actually freshman year of college. I was able to process and find hope through my relationship with Jesus and Mm. actually create my own, not necessarily like stream, but like, if you think of like connection, like I had my own connection with Christ and I had my own hope that was rooted in Christ rather than someone else gave me something that was rooted in Christ. It was now my own relationship. That's really cool. And it's cool that Levi in some way played a part in both your initial introduction to who is this person of Jesus and then ultimately knowing Christ for yourself. Absolutely. Which a lot of why we come to talk about these stories is to really allow for the heaviness of grief and the questions and the doubts that that brings. But I love that just very naturally, like God has redeemed Mm-hmm. Levi's death in a way for you mm-hmm. and showed you more of who he is in that which is so cool and I I mean I believe that hope can do that like when we look at this with a new perspective um hope does that it does change the way that we see the situation but and it doesn't negate the fact that that was a really dark time for mm-hmm. you but I love that um that in some way Levi was a part of a really big part of you knowing Jesus and Jesus revealing himself to you. Oh, absolutely. But I think also that like my ministry and my like philosophy of ministry is to help people who have been either hurt by the church or have been handed in some way, shape or form, like an incorrect view of who Jesus is. And I firmly believe that that is rooted in where I was in those dark years on how Jesus wasn't lived out in the people around me who claimed to be Christians, but didn't seem to care in those moments and didn't try to care in those moments. And also just going into ministry forward, like how deeply I love people and how deeply I want to love people all rooted in what Levi did when we were in fifth grade how I processed his death after junior year and how the Lord has redeemed that since coming to college. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that process? What did the grief process look for you in your junior year? Because at this point, and then maybe even what did it look like in your freshman year Mm -hmm. when you were introduced to Christ and really knew him intimately? Like what's the comparison between processing grief somewhat without really knowing Christ and then processing grief in knowing him. So different. So different. Yeah. So my junior year, I knew that I couldn't take my own life. Somehow that was still a like deeply rooted thought and deeply rooted, not even value, but something like he taught me back then. That was something that I still held on to. So I knew in the moment that I had no hope. I saw no future. I did not understand what was next. I knew at the very least I couldn't take my own life, but I also knew I couldn't physically harm myself because I knew my family wouldn't want scars because that would still produce the same amount of like emotional response. And I didn't want to do that to my people. So instead I destroyed really the only thing left that one could destroy, which was my reputation and Mm -hmm. some of my friendships. And so I immediately 
switched crowds that I hung out with, which ultimately got me in not a great relationship and not a great crowd that I was running with, but I had no idea what else I was supposed to do. And in the moment, I don't think it was necessarily conscious that I was doing these things. It was just a, I don't feel like I fit with the people that I'm currently around, probably because they'd never experienced any sort of grief. Yeah. And they had no idea. They didn't know Levi. I was at a different high school. Right. So they had no idea what I was feeling. And they expected me to immediately get over it and move on. Right. Which I obviously didn't and couldn't. Terrible words to use in the grieving process in any capacity there is no getting over it there is no no moving on no like this is now a part of me period like no but no period yeah (laughs) and so I didn't feel like I fit with that crowd and so instead I started hanging out with people who also didn't fit with those crowds the people who most people deem as like either the outcasts or the like weirdos or whatever like I found peace in them because they understood pain and so I probably unknowingly just found other people but was also in such an unhealthy place it was not a smooth transition where I took things out on people I angrily lashed out I cut ties I was very unkind and looking back like anyone listening to this that I went to high school with, like, I am so sorry. You probably (laughs) saw the change and I am so sorry. I was not, not a good human. And it was because I didn't know what to feel and what I was feeling and how to express that in a healthy manner or at all, because the people who were around me had no idea what was going on because it wasn't a community grief. No one else knew him. No one else around me was in pain. So I couldn't find a single person who was also in pain. And so, yeah, that compared to college of being in a community that wanted the best for me, I think is what the huge difference was. Mm. And so being around our friend group freshman year of women who understood what pain felt like, but also wanted me to grow from it, who wanted me to find peace from it rather than just sit in whatever pain I was in. Let me clarify that. In high school, it felt like the friends that I had felt the pain acknowledge the pain that's all we do no growth from here no next steps the pain is the pain like we're like we'll just sit in it forever. yeah we're yeah. just stuck here we'll just sit in this dark room forever right and that's not what freshman year felt like freshman year felt more like I'm gonna sit in the dark room with you with helping you provide hope that there is a light switch over there when you're ready to hit it that's good Like there is a door that can take us to a well-lit hallway. Like there is sunshine outside. There is, but if you're not ready to go there yet, I'll sit in the dark room with you. And that was the difference. That's so good. Acknowledging that there is growth. Yeah. But not, why aren't you outside in the sunshine yet? Why are you in this dark room? You need to be outside. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
it's the whole we're gonna move at your pace Mm -hmm. as much as like the people in our lives want to see us back in the light so to speak Mm -hmm. like it would be so wrong to just go flip the light switch on and drag us out into the hallway and then drag us out into the building like that is not I, I have this analogy my sophomore year the Lord gave me like this picture of um, me, I, it was probably the hardest, hardest part of my grief journey that I had experienced yet. And he gave me this picture of me sitting at the bottom of the ocean. Um, and I, it was cold and it was dark and, um, I thought that I was alone and he, and the picture was the people in my life trying to, some people in my life trying to yank me up into mm-hmm. brighter water, into warmer water, and eventually to get my head above the water. And um, it was just kind of this calming, like, that's not what I'm here to do. Like, I'm going to sit with you at the bottom of this ocean in the dark, cold water for as long as you need until you're ready to start to float up to the top. Because yeah. there is a top and there is air and there there exists the ability to keep your head above water but it is okay that you feel like you're drowning now and I'm just gonna sit with you with you here in this Mm -hmm. and I wish that's more of what people were trained to do Mm -hmm. it our, our friends are the people we go to church with our pastors to like not throw words at everything but just to be willing to sit with us in the really dark room yeah, at the bottom of the ocean and wait for us to get up and turn on the light. Yeah. Like I think Job's friends at the very beginning of Job are such an amazing picture of that. Like he had everything taken from him. He was in, he was at the bottom of the ocean and his friends came and sat with him in the ashes And then that's where I think the next thing that they do is what most of the church does. I think, I think the first few chapters of Job, the church doesn't do, they don't go and sit in the ash. The remaining 50 chapters of Job, (laughs) I think that's what the church does. They provide head knowledge. They provide what they think. They provide their theology as an answer. Do we agree with their theology? That's up to the person. I don't, but Job's friends offered what they thought caused the issue and they were trying to help him solve the problem. Is that needed? Later, not now. When we're when the person grieving is ready to process that, like actually head knowledge process that, yeah, we can then bring in those theological conversations like here's what god may be trying to do or what did you learn or what is he teaching you but right off the bat no not leave that at home and i do think i i think maybe this is a generational thing like maybe we are learning now how to do this better but it sounds like from your experience majority of it has been that the church doesn't do that well i would say that i know a majority of uh, of the church people in my life who have practiced that well and have show showed up when we really needed it and they didn't try to fix things with words but they were present and they you know provided like mm-hmm. basic things that we didn't even know that we needed like mm-hmm. from in my experience our church family showed up and just surrounded us but I think that that experience is 
is rare or in in the past has historically been more of a rare thing whereas like hearing church hurt from people who who say I went to the church and I was experiencing this thing and they just told me God has a plan and God has a will and Mm -hmm. that that was what they did like that's I think the majority of what we hear Mm -hmm. these days it very well could have either been my family's expectation but I also think my church played into it mm-hmm. where while I was grieving my junior and senior year, I did not feel like I had the space at church to actually feel this. But also I feel like I was still, I, I sang on our worship team. I was prominent. I led, I was there and I do not feel like I was able or given this space or even acknowledged that I could step down and take this minute if I needed to that I could sit instead of stand on the stage, that I could, like, not sit on the stage, but like sit in the pew instead of stand on the stage, yeah. that I could take this season to actually reconnect with God. Instead, I had to stay in that small leadership role that I had been given, and I was not expected to do anything else except still lead, except still perform, except still and how I received this being communicated was still wear the mask that you feel like you need to wear. You are unsafe to take that mask off here. And that pressure and expectation could have actually been put on you by people's words, mm-hmm. but it also could have been inferred from their inability or or unwillingness to just sit with you and make room for that. And maybe it's because they didn't know how, I don't know, we're, we don't need to make excuses for it. But like that pressure and expectation, I think is a real thing, whether people are actually saying that to mm-hmm. us or whether we're inferring that from the the lack of times and moments where we, we get to just sit with them and say, hey, I'm not willing, I'm not doing well. Is there room for that? Is mm-hmm. there room for that in, in this role in my life as a student, as a member of the worship team as a daughter, as a friend, is there room in my, in, in, in our friendship for me to not be doing well and to, can we, can we peel the pressure off or communicate that I feel pressure? And if that's not what you're putting on, then let's, let's talk it out. And that was the difference between mourning and processing in high school versus processing. Once I came to college, Mm. literally exactly what you just said is exactly what the women provided me from my unit. That is exactly what they gave me. They gave me space to not be okay. They gave me the space to lay in their bed with them and just cry and be held, which I rarely, if I dare say, never received before that. It was the first time that I was able to raw be Courtney, who was not okay for multiple reasons and I didn't have to wear a mask and present that I was okay or present that I had it all together or yeah. strive to be the one who helped the one. So like something that I, I know that I do is like I typically help people who are around me in a like, I will create the space for you to feel the things. Probably because I never received that, but like I will create the space for you to not be okay. But to receive that was transformational for me. And it sounds like your experience in high school was being around a lot of other people who were also in pain, but we weren't really acknowledging or trying to move from the pain into something else. It was just, all right, we're all in pain. We're 
stuck in this. We can't do anything about it. So we're just going to live out of that. But there wasn't an acknowledgement of saying like, I'm hurting and you're hurting and Mm -hmm. maybe we can sit together or maybe we can find out what can we do? What can we do for each other? What can other people do for us? It was just, which was also super helpful from the group that I had before that, which like they hadn't experienced pain. So they couldn't even help acknowledge that I was feeling pain. And so even the fact that that friend group then even acknowledge like you're in pain, I'm in pain. We can maybe talk about it, but not like process it, but like we'll acknowledge that it's present and we'll just stay in the fact that we both have pain. Like that, that was helpful in its own way where not long-term helpful, but like in, in even it being acknowledged was helpful. Hmm. Yeah, that's really good. It just sounds like there's consistency in that need for people to make room for us to feel for you to feel for the grieving person to feel free to experience whatever it is they need to and if that Mm -hmm. means that you have the energy to get up and do the next right thing and carry on with all your responsibilities then that's great like then that that's perfect like don't try to force on to someone oh you're not ready for that or whatever that may be but if if making room means saying I can't get out of bed today Mm -hmm. like yeah there's room for all sorts of unique processes within that but the cons- the consistency is let's make room mm-hmm. looking back now I think and I remember we talked about Levi and I remember when you got that tattoo and I remember going through the process of like learning about that time in your life and at the time as a freshman who hadn't lost anyone yet mm-hmm. I was confused because he had passed away a couple of years before and so I was like you were kind of going through delayed grief, which yeah. is really what was what was going on. Like you were just now in, in a healthy environment beginning yeah. to process what death and what his death meant to you. And at the time, I don't think I realized that. But looking back now, we had a lot of conversations about Levi and you went through a lot of new emotions. And yeah. I didn't understand at the time that they were that they were new emotions. Mm-hmm. I was like, you've been grieving him <laughs> for years. I don't understand the way that that works. Like, yeah. is is does it always feel that way? My, super naive. Little little did I know that in a year I would soon be, you know, experiencing yeah. that for the first time myself. Um, But it, right. It was kind of like delayed grief. Would no, you say? Absolutely. Like and exactly what you said of like safe environment. I don't feel like I had a safe environment to process any of these. So I genuinely would say I paused the griefing process. I compartmentalized. I shoved it in a box. I closed the box with everything that I possibly could, pushed it away and said, no, like we're not feeling this. We don't have this. We don't, we don't feel this. And just shoved it deep inside and kept going on as though like, not as though nothing had happened because my behavior changed, which is probably why I lashed out on so many people was because I had this emotion, wasn't acknowledging that I had this emotion. Right. And yet still was feeling the emotion, even if I wasn't acknowledging it anyway. But I wasn't in a safe space where I felt like I could open up that box and deal with what was inside of it until coming to college. Because once I was in that safe environment, that's where I've, for the first time opened the box and said and handed to someone like here are its contents and so yeah absolutely our freshman year which was two years removed from the experience I was feeling probably what someone else had felt two years prior yeah 
And it was a, I have suppressed this for two years. So not only, and I feel like that brings in another layer of grief of why have I not processed this sooner? Why am I just now dealing with this? Like, how dare I still be feeling these things? And being able to hear if that's you, that that's okay. Like there, there's not really a timeline for grief. Like we've talked about how we have these stages of grief and they do help, I think, pinpoint and label some things that a person might be walking through. But like to not linear to put someone on a timeline is to ignore the fact that they are an individual and they may not be emotionally ready, spiritually ready, mentally ready to walk through all that it is to grieve someone because it takes a toll on all parts of who you are. And some people just don't feel whether it's because you don't have the environment to do that, or maybe you do have the environment and you're just fearful of it. Like some people have to work through the fear of, am I allowed to feel this way? Even though the people around them are still saying to them like, no, we're here for you and we want to hear your story and we want to know how to help and X, Y, Z. Like there is still that real fear of like, but do they mean it? And what does that look like? And are they going to look at me differently if I start to process all this stuff? So until you accept that for yourself of like, I am feeling or like that fear, like, yeah, absolutely. And I think that once a person actually accepts that that environment is safe, that's how they're able to break through that fear and how they're able to actually process the things in this safe environment is once they overcome and like process through that fear that they have of, are they safe? Like, can I actually trust them? Will they think of me differently? Right. And fully accept that, oh, they do want this. Yeah. We all feel that to differing degrees, but that is a fear that everyone a part of the grief process has. Yeah. In some way, shape, or form, because a lot of times people really don't know what to do with us. And yeah, and a lot of times that's because there's this real fear surrounding like people, people don't know what to do with grieving people. And I think that seems to be pretty common. And so to feel like if they don't understand me, then are they actually going to want to sit with me? Are they going to be patient? Mm-hmm. All of that. Yeah. Um. So now that you, started to grieve in a safer environment and in knowing who Christ was. Um, what were some questions you had in the midst of grieving that might have felt a little too scary to ask out loud? I think the biggest one was what could I have done differently because it was suicide and it wasn't a medical something where there really wasn't any, like, what could I have said differently? What could I have done differently? Did I do something? Did I, like, how a lot of people want to take the blame on themselves? Yeah. I did to the nth degree, especially because it was two years removed. For two years, I held, held on to this blame without actually processing that. And once I started processing it, is when the question actually surfaced where I realized I had been blaming myself for two years before this. Mm. And so I say, I think that was my biggest one of what could I have done differently? Did you ever end up finding an answer to that or at least having that eased in your mind? Yeah. I think on my darkest days where it still comes up. So there's still like anniversaries, birthdays, all the things are still 
heavy days and every now and then is still just another heavy day. And I think it still sometimes comes up and I feel like that's just Satan like whispering in my ear to remind me of the pain that I felt before. But I think the peace that I have come to is not the stereotypical, like it happened for a reason, (laughs) but more of a, I have more come to peace because of how he has impacted his community as well as me individually and how we've talked about it, like how this moment, this, like him taking his life was what led me to Indiana Wesleyan, was what led me to ministry. Me processing it for the first time in a church after my senior year was the first time before my senior year was the first time that I actually released any amount of that that after the mission trip I ended up just picking back up as one does but it was the first moment that I actually felt that was my first moment for my call to ministry was in a church weeping with one of the leaders who had lost her mom felt very similar emotions that I did at that moment and I opened up to her and in that felt the Lord whisper that I was supposed to go to Indian Wesleyan looking back after being called to ministry. That was my first call to ministry hmm. that moment. And so it was more of a, not what could I have done differently, but how can I be changed because of what has happened? That's so good. How can I live differently? Yeah, man, that's so cool. And speaking of living differently, you, even in the midst of maybe not being in a good crowd in high school after Levi passed, you still were a part of a really cool uh, task force. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's the Cass County Zero Suicide Task Force, and they were near the very beginning of their process um, when I was mourning and was trying to figure out how to grow, how to move, how to be different. And so I reached out, her name's Serenity. I reached out to the president and I was like, hey, yo, I hear you're doing this cool thing. Cause I'm 17, I'm a senior in high school. Yeah. And so I reached out and I was like, hey, I would love to be a part of this basically in a very insecure senior in high school kind of way. <laughs> and I ended up being on the board for like two years, probably three years. And was a part of the process of them writing their bylaws and actually becoming a legit nonprofit, non-for-profit organization. And I was able to be a part of two lantern releases where we were inviting our community to write the name of people that they lost on a lantern and like light the bottom of it on fire and sit. And then also um, fundraiser walks where we had different booths and that's where we partnered with the national organization and it's really cool because both of the things that you got to do not only you know honored grief and made space for remembering the people who had been lost but also aimed to do something about mental health awareness and Mm -hmm. making sure people were aware like first of all you're not the only person who feels that way and Mm -hmm. thinks that way and there's people who would love to sit with you in those thoughts and feelings and maybe even 
learn how to like step out of that. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it a couple times, but you got a tattoo our freshman year and there's something really unique in your tattoo that people obviously can't see because we're doing this <laughs> in a podcast form. But do you want to talk about the uniqueness of the Jeremiah 2911 tattoo? Yeah. So part of it is when I got it, it was a pivotal moment of I have held on to this verse through learning more through the Christian realm. People call them life verses. I didn't know that at the time, but I had held on to this as my life, like as my life verse from fifth grade to that point. And I knew within myself that I needed to pick or find or I needed something else to hold on to. I just didn't know what. And through processing with our friend group, while also being in a New Testament class, I found the Lord for myself. We've already kind of talked about that, of finding my own relationship with him. And through my own study and through that church that I was at and what that girl had like talked to me about and stuff, I had then picked a new life verse for myself. And I feel like I needed to do something to honor Levi, to honor this switch, to honor where I was and how I had walked thus far. So I got a tattoo. And the one on my arm says Jeremiah 29 11. It's actually in Alyssa's handwriting. (laughs) And in between the 29 and the 11 is a semicolon, which there's a suicide awareness organization that's called the Semicolon Project. And their slogan is, a semicolon is used when an author could have ended a sentence but didn't. You are the author and the semicolon is your life. And so it's supposed to symbolize that it doesn't have to end here and it can keep going. Right. And then it's also green. The semicolon is green for mental health awareness. And I'm not joking you about the amount of people, Christians, who have seen it and not understood why it's a semicolon, they're like, that doesn't go there. <laughs> Tell me more. Or people who are like, I recognize that. How have you felt pain? Because right. I feel pain right now. Or I have felt pain. And it has been it has been a way that I have been able to connect with people who didn't know, to connect with people who were in pain, connect with people who had felt pain before. It's been really cool. But then to honor my new life verse, I got at the same time a verse on my foot that is in the shape of an arrow, yeah. kind of, and says, let go, let God, for Proverbs 16, 9, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps, yeah, I where that. I wouldn't have chosen the steps that I have walked. In the moment, they were horrible, but look at the steps that I've taken, and look at where it's taken me, yeah. and where the Lord has provided, and where the Lord has led me to through the different steps and it's kind of like a faithful abandonment posture of like hands wide open whatever you got lord and in that moment god becomes the author so the story that continues like you said it might it still might not look even to this day it's not like that's the first loss that you're ever going to experience and it hasn't been but like even to this day while you may have wanted other things for your life at a time, like you've chosen to want the things that God wants for mm-hmm. your life and the, and just to walk in those. And that's so cool. Yeah. 
do you still experience some regret about that time about either choices you made after losing him or leading up to that not reaching out absolutely absolutely and I think that is one of the largest lies that I still hear is it would have been different had you listened to that nudge or you were the last person that he needed like in suicide like you need like people like like you were the person he needed to reach out you were the you were the safety net and you didn't listen and so you're the reason that he fell like that blame and that point Mm. is I think the number one lie that I still hear but also without hearing the lie I think I still sometimes ask myself that question of Mm. why didn't I why did I feel this and didn't do it? And so, again, going back to like living differently of when I feel that prompt, I listen. Mm. No matter who it is, no matter how much time has passed, no matter what the relationship was then, what the relationship looks like now, if I feel some sort of prompt... I listen. You mean like to reach out to someone? Yeah. That's or cool. like to ask a question or to ask like if they're okay or to ask like how is your day going or like something like that. Like when I feel an out of the blue prompt that says like, hey, this person may not be okay, which is probably something to like clarify is discernment is my top spiritual gift. I can discern crazy cool things. And so I genuinely think that this is just another avenue of what that looks like, where sometimes the Lord just taps on my shoulder and sit, well, more taps on my heart and says, check on them. What do you do in those moments when you experience regret again? Like when that comes back up into your life and into your mind and you're asking those questions, what do you, what do you do? Sometimes it wins and I sit in the darkness and I yet again feel engulfed in the ocean and that I'm at the bottom of the ocean which doesn't feel necessarily like the bottom of the ocean it more feels like the bottom of a lake instead of like the depth to like compare the depth of the two right you're not back to that initial stage but But I'm still still heavy Mm -hmm. and so sometimes it wins and sometimes I am yet again feeling like I'm drowning, yet again in the dark room, have no idea the sun is shining outside, no idea there's a light switch, none of that. But sometimes it's the next step of, I'm sitting in the dark room, but my hand is on the light switch. And other times it's a, I'm able to still hold on to the truth of, I couldn't have done anything different. But essentially you honor that feeling like you honor whatever it is that that regret brings up which is great denying this for two years (laughs) has probably taught me the most that I cannot deny what emotions come up Mm. the person that I became by suppressing all of these emotions was because I suppressed all of these emotions and to honor Levi and to honor the people around me I you feel them out yeah yeah 
yeah, there's nothing better for me to do than to find the root of where this thought came from and where this question came from and where this regret came from. And sometimes it is from myself of, I see someone else who's hurting and it triggers back to, and sometimes I treat people like they were Levi. And I know that I have because I tell myself, like, if I could help them, it makes up for it, mm. which it, it's not the same. And that's an incorrect motive for me. It's just that decision to live differently. Like, it's not really about making up for anything. It's just about choosing different next time. Mm-hmm. And or at least like making yourself available to and, and listening to the voice of the spirit. Like you yeah. said, to be able to reach out to people yeah. and say like, hey, feeling like you're not doing well and maybe you're doing OK, but I'm going to check in anyway. And I think what needs to drive that is not necessarily guilt, but just remembering the love you had for your friend and wanting to love other people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a really unique part of your story has been that you just weren't around good community and the power that community had in reshaping your view of grief and reintroducing you to Jesus and and just choosing that for yourself. Like, said before that hope doesn't exempt suffering but it does inform it and for you you had a good period of time where you were grieving without hope and Mm -hmm. then learning about what hope looks like in knowing Christ really did change for you what Mm -hmm. grieving meant and ultimately like losing Levi knowing Levi and having his friendship and then losing Levi um God has used all of that in your life to bring you to the point that you're at now which is I just think is so cool like to see the faithfulness of God in that and to see his hand on you in the midst of that is so neat and it's all in retrospect yeah where in the moments it was the largest amount of pain it was the largest amount of regret it was so painful to finally like take those shackles off like I watched a video one time I could not tell you who produced the video (laughs) but it so accurately depicted what I felt where one guy who is acting like God um, walks up to the person who's like human and the person who's human is like yeah I want to grow in your image like blah 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 I want to be more like you and he pretend has this like chisel and like hammer and is like okay like kind of like a piece of marble like okay then you don't need this and you don't need this and we need to remove this and the guy you can see him wince and like oh like ow like oh like but god this is painful yeah it's like yeah you're right like you've picked up some pretty painful things or like you've experienced some pretty painful things but i still have more for you like i still want you to get to the root of who you are and the root to like where you are and um yeah, that was such an impactful video for me to watch where I was like, it doesn't negate the pain that I feel, the pain that I felt, but I still am growing into who God made me to be. Right. And looking a little bit more like you just have different eyes for people who are, who have been through what you've been through, Mm -hmm. which is so cool. Thank you so much for being willing to share that and be vulnerable and open. And I just appreciate that so much. Absolutely. I learned a lot from your grief experience and I am thankful for 
past Courtney who made room for really heavy things and was willing to learn from them and share that with other people. So neat. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely.